everyone. My name is Jim Hankey, and I'm the host of Vinyl Emergency, a podcast where musicians, producers, comedians, and those who dream up, press, release, or collect vinyl records discuss their relationship with the medium today as well as in their formative youth. Artwork that has stood the test of time, neighborhood record stores we remember, the first albums we ever bought, vinyl's warmth and sound, the tangible object of a vinyl record can bring forth so many intangible memories, and that's what we try to capture on the show. Guests have included Roseanne Cash, Ben Montench of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Brian Stack from Conan and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Ted Leo, Lily Hyatt, and Dave Porter of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. We've been known to do an episode or two in front of a live audience as well, and we also talk to everyday record collectors about what drives their passion. We even have episodes dedicated to the processes of mastering for vinyl, properly cleaning your records, the feeling of standing in line for hours on record store day, and much more. Tune into Vinyl Emergency however you get your podcasts. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vinyl Emergency, or stop by our website, VinylEmergency.com. This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week, we're going going into a scene. We did this kind of by accident with our desert rock scene. We didn't mean to go into a scene, but we kind of accidentally discovered a scene that was pretty cool a couple weeks back. But this time, we legitimately planned to dig into a scene. And as a part of our Digging Your Scene roundtables which we previously covered Los Angeles, Boston, Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and all of Australia, which seems now like we slighted Australia. (laughs) A little bit. bit. Considering the vast size of that that country. Actually, it's a whole continent. A continent, yeah. Yeah. But there's not a lot of people there, so to be fair. True. (laughs) Sort of like Canada. We can just cover Canada in one fell swoop. We don't have to do Toronto and... (laughs) Montreal and oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> so we're doing New York City, Jay. We've been wanting to get to this one for a while because we've covered a lot of bands that have come out of New York City in the '90s, and obviously the New York City music scene is legendary, going back to the infancy of rock and roll. So to help us discuss New York City in the '90s, we brought on a uh, a a guest list that's full of firepower, Jay. That's all I'm going to say. This is like a this, hol- it's like a sum- summer blockbuster. It is. This is like the Marvel Avengers of of round tables that we've got right here. This is the Infinity Wars. This is Infinity Wars. I don't know who's Thanos, but uh, we've got the we've got the uh, the gemstones or whatever the things are that they're all after. Which seems kind of odd. I don't want to no, we're not going to go down there. But chasing after diamonds is Focus. Focus. All right. The man you hear has joined us before when we had him on after we failed to have him on for the Brainiac episode. And he said, what? Why didn't you have me on for the Brainiac episode? We said, okay, come on and we'll talk about something else. Eli Janney is back. You know him from Girls Against Boys and the 8G band on Late Night with Seth Meyer. Welcome back, uh, Eli. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Quick question. When did you arrive in New York City? I moved in uh, November of 91. November of 91. Okay. 
So two months after Nirvana's Nevermind was released. That's an important yeah. milestone yes. in the 90s. It's the only, oh. I don't know if you're aware of this, but that's when the 90s actually started. I see, I see. Okay. Is when Nirvana's Nevermind came out. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us from New York City, Mike Studo, former booker at Brownies, former director of college and alternative radio and marketing for Beggar's Banquet Records. Welcome, Mike. Hello. So are you a I'm native here. New Yorker or did you move there at some point? Uh, well, I've lived in the East Village in Lower East Side for 29 years. Okay. Um, and my family are a New York, you know, my grandparents all came through Ellis Island and lived here. But during my middle school and high school years, my family moved to Bergen County in New Jersey. So I have some suburban school years. Otherwise, I'm a New Yorker. All right. And when we talk about New York and New Jersey, I mean, those are incredibly close. I mean, that's like, that's, uh, you're talking about a quick car ride in a lot of cases from Jersey yeah, to I mean, the city. I didn't, I, I never changed, I never changed radio stations when I was a kid, you know, like when <laughs> I moved, it was the same market, you know what I mean? Gotcha. And then finally joining us from New Jersey, guitarist for Ruth Ruth, Mike Lustig, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. And are, have you always lived in New Jersey, or at some point were you a resident of New York? No, it's funny. I'm actually exactly the same as Mike Studo, which I didn't know. Um, I was born in Manhattan, but then my family moved to Jersey, and I grew up in Bergen County, and then moved back to New York. Oh, really? What town in Bergen County? Ridgewood. Oh, wow. What town were you from? Ramsey. Uh, it's the same thing. Basically, the same thing. Did you guys live next you door to each other? <laughs> about, yeah, yeah about, five, about five miles. There was a better record store in Ridgewood. We'd go to Ridgewood to buy concert tickets, and uh, and the record <laughs> store was better than the, than the Ramsey. I didn't even know Ramsey had a record store. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> that's, my, that's my Ridgewood store. <laughs> He booked in records, man. Yeah. All right. We we need to save this for our when we do your dig in your scene, Bergen County, New Jersey, on a future episode. Uh, let's I, just Gern Blanston. That's all there really is. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Mighty, mighty So, Mike, um, I'm lusting. I'm gonna start with you. Yeah. So, you so Ruth Ruth came up. It was actually called something different, right? At the beginning, in the earlier 90s, wasn't the band well, called? The sing Chris, the singer, and myself were in another band called Janata. Right. And, and then I was with her. So what bands in, or what uh, venues in the area in the early 90s were you guys playing or going to see what you would call local bands at at that time? The early 90s? uh I suppose by then we were playing uh, with Janata. We played a lot of like the kind of old classic places. We got to play like the Ritz and the Bottom Line, and um, but then a lot of the really shitty clubs, the Cat Club and the Bitter End, the China Club, all these like nightmare places. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until the mid '90s, I guess, like '93, '94. When we started at Brownies and Continental and those places. Okay. Yeah. Is that yeah, I list enough New York places? 
Well, I, I want to see how that matches up with, with Eli. Uh, so you got to New York in 91, where there was some of the same venues that uh, you're playing with, uh, playing out with Girls Against Yeah, Boys. well, basically, I, I came up in 91 to, uh, to be in Girls Against Boys. We had kind of done some stuff in the studio, but we never really made a live band. But the other guys had a band before that called Little Baby Sound System, I think, mm. something like that. And those guys had already been playing some shows in New York. So that band dissolved. And so then Scott, our singer, called me and was like, you should move up here and we should do Girls Against Boys. And I was like, yeah, move to New York. So when I went up there, I think, I believe our first show in New York was at CBGB's, which is sounds ridiculous, but it was I'm sure it was a terrible slot. But because those guys already had a relationship with them, they they booked us there first. Well, so that, that that really makes. Did you did you get to do the uh, the first time I ever played CBs? We did like the Tuesday night audition, yeah. two a.m. like that kind of thing. <laughs> no, but I I feel like it was a matinee. Did they do all ages matinees? Yeah, I yeah, grew up they did. Yeah, because I, I, I think that's what it was. The first show was like a matinee on like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. It was, it was a pretty good. But then, you know, we played we we'd played there and then at Studo, when did we played Brownies a bunch of times, but I can't remember how early it was. Do you remember? Uh, I, you know, did you ever play Brownies when it had the small stage in the corner? Or was uh, it always with the way the because like I got there in '94, and there were shows before me. Uh-huh. Karen Edlitz was doing shows, and a couple other people were doing oh, shows there. Right. And yeah, it just yeah. had like a makeshift stage in the corner. I don't. Wasn't I it, remember. Wasn't it always a makeshift stage in the corner? <laughs> like, was it like <laughs> really? Well, depends on your definition of makeshift. I uh, mean, it was a it was a small stage, but it was a real stage. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. yeah, it was a real it. stage. It wasn't. Yeah, exactly. It was. Um, I don't, I, I guess, early, like when I started in 94, 95, you guys might have played once or twice, but you were almost then too big to play brownies. You were doing, you were headlining CDs, which was almost twice as many people. Yeah. I know and we then played we did that. that one, well, yeah. Yeah, we did like a, an underplay later of some kind when yeah. I think, <laughs> didn't, didn't Johnny shit get stolen? <laughs> that sounds right. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so. <laughs> We, Somebody snuck into the basement and stole his stuff. Yeah, that's right. That was a bad. That was a bad moment. But that happened all the time. We had stuff stolen out of our van on the street and all kinds of dumb things. I mean, yeah. Oh that, yeah, vans. Vans could would get broken into constantly up through the nineties. That didn't stop in ninety five or six or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't really park a van overnight. In the, no. you had to leave instruments either in somebody's apartment or in the club, yeah. Or it would get, or somebody sleep in the van. And even that was dicey, having someone sleep in the van. That that was totally. not always a great idea. So we we we. But it, going back to your question, yeah. So I remember playing brownies a bunch um, before and with Studio, and then we played CBs. And, and I can't remember where else. We probably snuck on to some opening slots at Irving Plaza. And then we also... Yeah, you played, you played the Mercury Lounge, didn't you? 
Yeah, but that that came later. When did the Mercury open? I feel like that was later. Like earlier on, we were, we played. Um, what was was it? Tramps. Like ninety four, ninety five, when Teresa was first booking there. In the okay. Mercury. Yeah, we definitely played Mercury. But there was also what was the play? Where was Tramps? That was the old Max's Kansas City. There were two Tramps. No, so, but it was also in Midtown. It was on like Twenty First Street. Yeah. Sixth Avenue. Yeah, that's it. But that was. Yeah. A- people that was pretty big that was what yeah you guys got big for the time yeah for a second <laughs> <laughs> but i don't think we never played though we did i went to a bunch of shows at, in other places like don hills and and uh wetlands and places like yep. that but um and then all kinds of weird like places that kind of came and went very quickly but uh, oh oh and you know um, what was that place uh, Gasseteria wasn't that down down in the Lower East Side? Oh, the, gas, the gas station was on Second Street and Avenue B. Gas and station. There was, wasn't a lot of stuff there. It was like once in a while. I never understood how. I saw like David Kilgore there or something. <laughs> um, anyway, we, we yeah. played there. Uh, we, we definitely played there very early yeah. on. It was like a little outdoor, but it had a, you know, it was a former gas station. There were like art sculptures and, but like mostly made out of broken junk. Yeah. And then they yep. did those like a garage of the gas station once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, that was pretty, I, I remember having a good time there. Just being yeah, weird. I do too. <laughs> it was a lawless, you know, it was a lawless place for a while. Well, I mean, the, the the thing is, when I moved up here in 91, it, New York seemed like a terrifying place. Like, street crime seemed very prevalent. And I don't know whether that was, was like, me it moving was. up here. It but was. It didn't feel like it was. Yeah. yeah. It was really, you know, dangerous, for sure. It was, it was, it's kind of funny because that, you know, like, we, I moved into a warehouse in South Williamsburg, and like somebody sawed through our wall to break into our apartment, like just the craziest <laughs> shit would happen. And it just seemed routine at the time. Like, well, that happened, you know, like people breaking in. I remember somebody stole a SVT cabinet uh, and we we're just like, that's so much work to steal an SVT yeah. cabinet. Just like, what? The? it's so crazy. But uh, you know, now Williamsburg is one of the most expensive neighborhoods in New York City. And when I try to explain it, I sound very, very old. Like, yeah, back in my day, <laughs> South 6th Street yeah, was so dude. scary. <laughs> one, of my earliest, one of my earliest memories of being in New York and like being kind of excited and scared. And we had to walk from our apartment on South 6th and Barry to the Z train, which was a terrible station. And we were walking, the Lexus and I were walking there, and these two guys come walking the other way. And as they pass us, one guy just reaches out and just punches Alexis in the face. They just keep walking like nothing happened. That was it. They just they weren't robbing us. The guy just wanted to punch Alexis in the face. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like this place is crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, that that was kind of you had to kind of keep your head down to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, I would often like, you know, you walk home with your keys out. I live yep. in a storefront on Clinton Street, and you'd have to have your key ready because if somebody like came in behind you, you were in your apartment. You weren't in the hallway where you could scream and anyone would hear you. Oh it's really, God. really, <laughs> in retrospect, kind of stupid. You guys are really <laughs> selling New York. 
<laughs> wow. Oh, there's more. I never, there's I've more. never had any of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> the truth is, it was a much more... So it was a much more fun place to live then. Yeah, the, it, it the lawlessness of it also the lawlessness actually helped, as, as Studer was saying, because you could have these sort of fly-by-night clubs that, like, kids would get a hold of a space and they just put on a show, and the and the cops usually just wouldn't even bother, and let you know like, the, the, people. The cops in in until the mid mid nineties, the cops didn't really bother with you know they were trying to bust people who were doing drugs you know like they were busting people doing drugs and just worried about actual violent crime yeah yeah um so none of that shit mattered if you had a noisy bar built beneath you it, it there's pretty much nothing you could do <laughs> it's true but i think my favorite memory of which sounds insane now again but we used to have a practice space on north 6th street like right in prime, what is now prime Williamsburg. And we had a very inexpensive, incredibly cheap practice space there. It was all, the reason why it was so cheap is because the roof had collapsed and they hadn't done anything <laughs> about it. So we were there for like, I don't know, almost a year with the roof. It was cheap because it was a condemned building. That it was a condemned cheap. building, yeah. <laughs> it was just right down, what was that? There was Coyote... Uh, recording studio and uh, practice space right down right down the block. Now I think it's some shishi fashion house. I know it is. Yeah, our old, our old practice space was uh, our drummer worked at Chow Bella Ice Cream, which was on Mott Street. Yeah, we oh, rehearsed yeah. in their basement. Which no was, way. Yeah, and the ceilings were like six feet, so you had <laughs> zero room. But the best thing was then after rehearsal, you go eat ice cream all night if you wanted to. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. I, that was the thing I remember. Everybody's practice space was dodgy as shit. Like no one had a nice practice space. Like no. all this stuff in the East Village, all those basement places like that, Mike, that you were talking about. I just remember going and jamming with people and it, it was just like, duck your head down, duck your head down. Yeah. And you just had to like eat, sit on a crate while, you know. Fucking well, rats running by. It was, it was, dude. It was New York, oh, man. How how did you guys rats all the time, all the time? <laughs> how did you guys get uh like get equipment moved around? Like how the drummer get a drum kit to and from gigs? Like I used to I used to put a, a four by twelve Marshall cabinet in the trunk of a taxi. Did you really? Skills, <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <laughs> uh, and I... There were some van people. There were definitely a couple of people who had vans who would like 50 bucks. They'd bring you to your show or something like that. That guy from uh, oh, Gabby from, I can't remember his band, but there was a guy who had a van that would do it. I remember a couple oh, of guys yeah. in, uh, I, there were more than one East Village band who uh, had hand trucks and they would just literally roll their shit down wherever to the <laughs> club because it was only a few blocks. And they just got like you know either built or stole like little hand trucks, and that was their transportation. <laughs> wow! They yeah. literally pull up and they're like, "This is our van," and it was like two hand trucks. <laughs> That's pretty so, good. Not hand trucks and uh, whatever, just like flat whatever right. you, call, you know skateboards, no. dollies. That's dollies. pretty great. Yeah, dollies. Well, we we actually had a van pretty early on because because it was a succession of bands, so like. 
the other guys from Girls Against Boys were in this punk band from DC, Soulside, and they had a van. You know, we, I was doing sound for Soulside, and we toured a lot. So they already had a van, so we we kind of inherited that van. So we, and I think you know, Mike, it's kind of funny that you said that because I think that Scott actually moved bands around for money. That was one of the yeah. few ways that, we scrounged up that, some cash. That sounds like yeah, it was it was it was a way to have income. If you had that van in town, it's kind of weird. It seems to me that bands in almost every other place would have vans because how else would you get anywhere? Yeah. In in any city, right? I mean, it's not like you need to transport stuff. But in New York, you don't transport yourself that way, so you need to hire people to do it. So if you had a van, yeah, it wasn't yeah. not every band had a van. Things they yeah. did, you know, if you were in Chapel Hill in the early '90s, they might have been bands that shared vans, but everyone had a van or access to a van. Yeah, not so, so much like, here except a phone call of some guy, you know, like flyers around of like man with van. Man with van was everywhere. That's true. Yeah, it was what? like if if it was today, you would have a. Uh, we should, maybe we should start it here, like yeah, like a New York-based rock show Uber. Where we, That's what I was just to say. It was like Uber, <laughs> rock Uber. But but I, I'm shocked at now, and I don't know. You can tell me, Studo, maybe when this started. But now clubs provide backlines. Like every size club has a backline now, which we yeah, never. Um, they never had backlines. No, no, they didn't, and it's kind of. I imagine if we had a backline of brownies, it would have gotten so beat to shit by everybody yeah. that we would have had to buy a new one every new drum sets all the time. It was like it just seemed like people were harsher than they are now. The band, I don't. Uh, so touring bands didn't want to use your your style. Like nobody wanted to use your backline. Yeah, it wasn't That's even true. a question. Actually, kind of weird in retrospect. Continental had, I think they had a backline of Continental, at least uh, cabinets, and we never even used them. We always just assumed they would be a nightmare, so just brought our own stuff to me. Jay, huh. did the Continental have it when we were there? Uh, I think they did, yeah. Okay, that would have been 2002. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, let me ask you guys, um, is per capita maybe but at least in the United States is the greatest concentration of clubs in the entire United States in the New York city area. What is it? Does it rival Chicago and LA in terms of the number of clubs in a, in, in that particular city? I mean, I, I, they, they, it was so cyclical, you know, clubs, some of the clubs established clubs continued and now, now they seem to hang on for, because they're more corporatized, but at least in the, I felt like in the early 90s, there was a lot of smaller clubs coming and going. So you couldn't really say how many clubs there were. Plus, as Studio and I were saying earlier, like you could get away with putting on shows in spaces where, you know, as soon as, as, soon as Giuliani like started his war on nightlife, that was it. Like you couldn't do that anymore. Okay. So yeah, I don't, I don't really know. It certainly yeah. seems like it. I mean, it's got to yeah. be because you know, just because New York's just so filled with people, everybody likes playing music and hearing music. So it probably did. It was either New York or L.A., but New York was just yeah, tight. I think, the, I think it was. It was just. I'm sure it was just comparable to Chicago and L.A. and maybe and even San Francisco. If you know, but it's more like how many places had touring bands and how many yeah. places had just local stuff that was just anybody who could bring a drinker to, to a show. <laughs> um, and that's the thing about New York is that the scene was 
well, first of all, there's no one scene. Uh, right. You know, New York, there's always been a, a honky-tonk scene in New York and a blues scene in New York, and there's a, there's a singer-songwriter scene, and there's an indie rock scene, and a hardcore scene, and a Jersey hardcore scene, and then Staten Island hardcore scene. You know, there's, there's no one thing. Uh, so it's not really that monolithic like most other scenes you would, most other cities kind of appear to be, whether they are not, whatever, I don't know. Um, I, I just uh, felt like it, it was just so much shit going on, and a lot of people who would come here that weren't from here, and that sort of made it where there was a sort of network of bands that weren't necessarily New York bands, but that were tied to either through zines or through labels, and that was part of what New York was, too. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, so anyway, at least I well put, Studio. It's true, but it's true about the scenes, though. It's true. There were so many. And, like, we, we definitely crossed over, you know, like, Girls Against Boys because we had some loud stuff and we had some other weird songs and stuff like that. So we ended up on some odd bills, you know, playing with Youth of Today and stuff like that. We're like, huh, this is not really our scene, you know, or playing another weird, you know, matchups. That, but it was kind of cool at the same time, too, you know. I, I, but I agree that there were so many scenes and... Like later in the 90s, much late in the, you know, 98, 99, uh, I started getting into the dance scene, which was just exploding in New York during that time. You know, there was, oh, yeah. I was like, I didn't even there's this, that. There was there's this a, whole other scene going on. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and Chicago is like that, too, to some extent. Uh, of <laughs> course, you know, it's not just. Of course. But I would say when you talk about, like, at least from my point of view, because I ran a little venue that everybody kind of thought was their place. But at the end of the day, we did as much like power pop and hardcore as indie rock as to like, it didn't really matter. There was, there was enough space. There was enough uh, slots in the week to give anybody who could, you know, command an audience. Like, and that, was, and that was the majority of New York clubs. I mean, aside from like wetlands who had like a definite theme, all yeah, they had a team, but they crossed lines too. They had, I mean, yeah, they had hardcore they, shows and, and stuff. They but, had hardcore shows and they did hip hop and they did a yeah. wide variety of shit too. They were just outward with their weed and vegetarianism. Yeah, it's still a place for dirty hippies in the end. <laughs> yeah. But, so but how, I found, I found the lack of, of a scene, if that's what you call it, like it was very kind of isolating in a way because you didn't, like, the yeah. The only scene I ever really saw was uh, the CBGB scene in the 80s. Like, as a kid, I used to go to those hardcore shows and that felt like a community, kind of. Even though I wasn't, like, um, part of it. I'd I'd stand there and be like, this is cool. This is a real scene. But after that, in the 90s, it was always, like, load your gear in, play, get out. Don't get a parking ticket. (laughs) And I didn't... There wasn't much of a scene. Maybe a Luna Lounge. There was a little scene, you know. But yeah, yeah it's hard, you know, it's uh, funny. Yeah, it, was... Go ahead, Mike. No, no, go ahead. Please, I, I was just going to say, it, uh, but the the thing about that is that looking back on it now, and and having people talk to me about their view of what my band was, and they saw like us existing within a scene. That sometimes, 
like I didn't feel like at the time, like, oh, it was like you guys and John Spencer and Cop Shoot Cop and all this stuff. And I was like, was it? Gosh, I didn't, I don't know. I just like, but I think that musically and it, and certainly timing wise, because we we're all very active at the same time, the, that the, it was kind of a scene. It's just like, I felt like when I went to Chicago, all the touch and go people would all hang out at the same bar. And that never seemed to happen in New York. But maybe because there was just so many scenes going on, like like Studio said. Yeah, I think that was part of. I mean, there there were centers like Max Vish was the center of that scene for sure. That's but, right. Yeah. Uh, and and Brownies there, was too. You know. Yeah, like, Brownies was to an extent, but you know, people came there to see shows. It wasn't really a hangout too much. Um. So yeah, there there was always everything happening in this town. I mean, there was never really just one. <laughs> thing it's true you know there yeah no, that's true so, and, and plus I mean, the, we're the, thinking as we're talking about the indie rock scene <clears throat> there's more than one i mean the sort of thing that happened in the late 90s that i guess started with you know technically it started with the strokes kind of all of a sudden like guys dressed in black playing rock and roll and you know was back it was just like the entire lower east side just cheered even the yeah. people who were not young and into them at the time, it was like that was when rock kind of returned. Yeah. That's um, it. But like... there was a whole earlier, there was a whole bunch of other shit that went on earlier too. The whole, uh, I'm trying to think of the good examples of it, but there was a lot, you know, it was a lot of power pop bands in the city too. Mm-hmm. So how did you, Mike, with regards to brownies, you're talking about all these shows. How did you get the word out to people? Like what media were you using to advertise, to um, promote mm-hmm. these shows that were happening? Um, well, it's all before the internet. I mean, really we had our answering machine. We would keep it updated <laughs> for five or six days in advance. Wow. Okay. Uh, there was a, and mostly it was a weekly ad in the, uh, in the village voice. And everybody, and I mean everybody, like Tuesday night, Wednesday morning when The Voice came out. That was a big deal. You, did. you went yeah. and you looked at shows and what was going on that weekend. And it was, it was pretty universal. Uh, and then Time Out, time, it was New York Press too. I'm trying to think of all the stuff before the internet. I'm pretty sure I had a fax list that I would send um, the show calendar to like New York Press and you know, whoever, just writers to know this stuff was coming up. Um, you kind of expected the bands to do it too. And they did as much of it as anybody else. Uh, we'd pace thing around the neighborhood that mattered too. It seemed. Um, yeah, we flyered a lot. What else do you like? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no. Village voice. Really... Village voice was the way you found out about shows basically. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, yeah. I was, I, I always looked in uh, screw magazine. <laughs> really? <laughs> and my uh, guide to New York. The guide to New York. Yeah. Was, but, yeah, my, but it is, yeah, it is funny. Like, like putting up flyers actually seemed to, you know, that was a way that we communicated with people too. You put up flyers around the East Village, and people would learn about had your mailing show. list. Bands, bands would book their shows a month in advance, and you had a mailing list, and you would mail postcards out to people and tell them you were playing. Um, yeah. And but for us, I always felt like we weren't. It was wrong to call me a show promoter because I was a show booker. I, you know, we didn't really promote the ad. We put the ad out. 
we did a couple of little things, but it was really the responsibility of the band to bring people to the club. Yes. Yeah, that's um, It wasn't really seen as, like, what can you do for it? Like, all I could do for you was give you a stage. Um, you know, we weren't really promoting. It, it isn't as if I was some uh, disseminator of what was cool, and then people right. came to us. And there was there was definitely a people ask where we found when you talk about bands not from New York, they would just say, Where do you find these bands? And the answer is just they found us. We didn't find them. Right. You know, they, they knew where to, they knew where to send their, you know, their their stuff. And we would love trying to hook up touring bands with local bands that liked them. You know, that was kind of our function was putting bills together so that the local bands could make friends with out-of-town bands and get other shows and know each other, just introducing people to each other in the right situation or taking a bill and just putting together, you know, letting somebody put a local bill together. Was there any radio that was supportive of local bands? WNYU, maybe? But I don't think you could really get them. It wasn't for, not for us. We, we never had that, really. Well, what about SOU, dude? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, um, yeah, for for metal and for hard rock stuff, WSOU completely yeah. had an impact on that scene completely. Yes. It would, I don't know if they ever played in Girls Against Boys, though. We were not hard enough for them, I think. Although I feel like they had like some sort of hardcore show that was less metal. Because I remember hearing Jawbox yeah, they, on there. That's possible. That might have been a little later on that they did that, but they kind of moved. I don't remember. I never listened to the radio in New York. I just didn't. It was, yeah, I don't, it was just not a part of your day to day. Yeah, I don't you think would so. Get and you'd walk around with, like, you know, your Walkman or your CD <laughs> Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true because, you know, the thing is, is like we didn't have cars, so we wouldn't drive around because we just take the subway. So there wasn't that much radio. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, you didn't. Yeah, radio was never really a part of it. Yeah, that's another like, difference you know, between the Midwest and and uh, yeah. a big city like that is that there's a lot of driving, so you constantly would have the radio on, like in like well, in Ohio or Michigan. That maybe that's that's the origin of the '80s beatboxes with the rap guys. Like, yeah, they were in New York and they wanted to listen to radio and. Hmm. No car. You got to carry that. Yep. Now everyone just has their phone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know. Some and... people still drive around in their car. Some people still drive around in their cars blasting, usually not good music. But <laughs> That's true. So yeah. on a local level, were there record stores that would say stock a uh, you know a seven inch that a local band was putting out or uh you know a demo or something like that or, or you know local bands that weren't on major labels but they were still able to get into the studio or do some sort of recording that were that they could go to a, a you know not a chain but like a local uh record store and and get support from you know the staff there and there were a ton of record stores yeah but as far as like it being in a band and trying to get where you want to go, like our thing was always we gave our stuff away free. Like we didn't even try to do that. We would <laughs> we'd literally go into the East Village with 
uh, tapes and just hand them out to anyone who looked like they might <laughs> someone pull in like a band or something. Just give it to them. Actually, it was a smart thing to do at the time because people weren't doing it. They were all worried about how much money they were going to make. It was like, you're not making money yet, dude. You know, build it up. Yeah, hmm. yeah the that I was able to, I, I was able to steal like 2,000 cassettes. <laughs> I told this story a million times, but I worked in a record store and they were throwing out all these cassettes and I was able to grab them. So we just handed out demos forever. <laughs> uh, you mean blank cassettes? Yeah, there was this company, uh, I can't even remember the name now, but it was basically like a make-your-own-mixtape station in a record store, and they went out of business because it was the worst idea ever, and uh, we had to throw out all the cassettes, so I just took them. That is a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. That's pretty funny. Well, you know... uh, really DIY, man. I will say that... uh, it sound, might sound odd, but Tower Records was actually very supportive of the local scene. I remember getting... Yeah, definitely... Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I just remember going in there and like flipping through the singles and stuff, and I was always surprised. Like, oh, shit, they just, they just... They'll, you know, people would go there and bring it to them. And it was basically... I think, you know, some they would buy from, uh, you know, distributors, obviously. But then I think that locally you could bring your stuff there and they would stock it. And then it was like consignment where if it sold and then you get money. But if they didn't sell, it would just sit there. I would go check our stock. Yeah, there was definitely. I mean, I was trying to think of when Kim's started when it was in the West Village. And that was 90, 91 at the latest. Yes. God, and, yeah. Uh, like them and Peer Platters and Rebel Rebel. Um, it's horrible that I can't think of the rest of them. There were so Sounds many record stores. Um, so many. And there were definitely like record stores would allow you to, have, they all had like little flyer tables or something where you could pile up your flyers or, give, you know, show schedules. Um, they would, uh, and, and you could, like definitely, you could go in there with two copies of your record and they'd take it. Not every store, but, you know, there were stores that helped local bands who were, you know, if you were, like, active and good, you know, if you showed up and offered, you know, it was a much more lazy time, too. People weren't, like, there weren't, the best bands didn't really hustle their shit, you know? They weren't business people. Like, John Spencer never fucking went around hustling his music, I don't think. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Um, You know, like, you remember putting a little... Yeah, no, they fly. I'm sure he wheat tasted and shit like that. But um, I never felt, you know, I always felt like the bands that stood up and went and, you know, brought their stuff into a store would get reacted to and you'd get given a shot for the most part. Mm-hmm. So where yeah. were those bands on a local level recording at? I'm sure that you had mentioned that there was, what was it, Coyote? Was a studio? Yeah, Coyote was a was a place in Williamsburg. And I, again, just to stress, I can't stress to you how much Williamsburg was a total disaster site at that time. Like the, we have lots of, uh, we did lots of photo shoots along that waterfront because the buildings were all collapsed and completely dangerous to be inside. But of course we went inside anyway, but there was that place. There was another one. Um, I'm just, I can only, there's so many, but the, the ones that I can list that we worked at was uh, Coyote. We recorded at a place called Excello, 
which was on Powers. Oh, yeah. And I, not only did we record there, but it, we did the first Brainiac record there. And then across the street opened a few years later. Um, <coughs> dude, what is it, what is it called? Uh, I'm forgetting the name of it now. But there's another big studio there. And then downtown in, in like sort of Wall Street area, there was this really cool, really weird place called DeSau Studios that was basically yeah. some, it, it was almost like the offices of some 1940s accountants that they hadn't really done anything to. So there was just like this office out, that looked out onto the street that had sort of glass 40 style wood and glass partitions. And then beyond that was that where you Bill, were. Was huh? that Bill Laswell's thing in the 80s? Did Bill Laswell work there in the 80s a bunch? I feel like I maybe that, that might be. It was up on the second floor. It was a really cool place. We did some recording there. That was really cool. But then, you know, like. There was, oh, was definitely a water music in Hoboken, too, and some yes. stuff out there. Yes. We, were, we made an album out there, too. Uh, but there was, you know, all the big places were going strong. You know, Electric Lady and Sorcerer and Green Street and um, Magic Shop. Down, down in Soho. Mike, where did you guys record like early stuff or demo? Like before you had a record deal, where did you record? Us, you're through it. You're talking about? Yeah, uh, yeah. Before the re- oh god, we a few places in Jersey, and actually we made that first record at Water Music. Um, right. Yeah. And Eli, we made it with Ted Nicely. I don't know. If That's you know. right. Yeah, yeah. Because he was working out there for a while. Yeah. Um, but we in the city, it was all like the bigger places. By the time we were. You know, like in, in Jersey, we recorded demos and stuff, and we did stuff at home a lot. Um, but by the time we were in the city, it was uh, uh, Philip Glass's place on Broadway we used. And, um, uh, God, I can't remember the names of anyone. Place on 12th Street. Uh, wow. Oh, I can't remember the names. It was like 12th and University. <laughs> there was a studio. Uh, oh, wow. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah it was right by the um, Gotham Bar and Grill. Huh. Yeah, right on. <laughs> I know exactly where that is. But I don't, huh. Um, yeah. There's a movie theater right there, too. It's like yeah. right on that block. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, one, the other one in Williamsburg was Mission, which is still going. Mission Sound. It's one of the few that survived. Wow. I think Excello might still be there, too, but it's changed hands. But, I yeah. So. Yeah. But, you know, it, it was, you also spent a lot more money. When you would make a record, you would just spend a lot more money than, than, that, than you do now because you could sell records. I yeah, seem exactly. to me. Like, you could, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what sales are like now, honestly, but it's like, I, it's, before, we, you wouldn't, you know, we didn't have any, was, when we started getting some money, we would actually spend money on recording and spend days and weeks in the studio. Who released the first couple of, were you guys on Touch and Go from the beginning? What was the first stuff? The very first record was actually on Jeff Nelson from Discord Records. He had a side label and called Adult, I think it was called Adult Swim. Yep. And uh, there's, and uh, which now I'm like, hey, isn't that a cartoon network? But they, uh, that, the first LP came out on that. There was an EP before that that we just put it out ourselves, which then he later picked up and put on Adult Swim. But then after that, 
we went, moved to Touch and Go for three records. Right, right. During the boom years. During the, yeah, exactly, <laughs> the boom years. It's like when anyone with a Sonic Youth t-shirt and a Wawa pedal could get a record deal. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking yeah. of labels, what was the label situation like in New York, I, obviously there's the, the massive labels, but like on a indie sort of local level, not connected to majors, um, is there, you know, obviously Touch and Go is is known out of Chicago, but like, is there that sort of label, that sort of definitive label out of New York for the 90s? I think wow. Matador and I would, you know, I would say Matador and what Homestead was before it was definitely yeah. a big uh, one of the local. But there was, like, you know, Rough Trade had U.S. offices there, um, the U.S. company, and it was a pretty small label, and they did a lot of American stuff. So it's like some of it, in the same way that in Chicago this would happen too, a lot of the sort of middle labels were in New York as well. You know, like TVT was here, and Mute was here, and Caroline. Um, okay. So there was a... There was that, and as far as that, like smaller labels that would do, there definitely were. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like what would be like the sort of. I was thinking, what's like the Discord of New York? Because I, I, I did, you know, as soon as we were in Touch and Go, we just didn't, you know, we, yeah. we had our label. So. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, Matador was that for a while. They were, they're a big. They seem like a huge established label now, but. You know, in the beginning, it was yeah, that's true. And, yeah, you know, it was like a lot of New York stuff that got put out through them, uh, and they just became a much bigger label later later on. But you know, it's surprised. Uh, I, would I would guess I'm going to bet that Adult Swim probably paid faster than Matador back in those days. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, but I, I I don't remember that that, that I'm sure there was. I, it's, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember exactly. I feel like there were probably. You know those labels. PCP, that, that, you know, that PCP Entertainment thing that put out some of the, like I think they put out the Cop Shoot Cop records. Ah, uh, New York. Okay. PCP was the place. I remember the guy and I can't remember his name. I see him all over the city still. Um, and like that was definitely kind of like part of the scum rock scene in New York that they put out a lot of local records. Hmm. Um, whatever. Uh, oh, well, who put the Chrome Crank stuff out? That stuff. I'm trying to think of the, from that scene what the, what the labels were. And I can't remember who put that record out. <laughs> Mike, did you, have, did you have label people and brownies like every night? There must have been. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. That's just what I was thinking. I was thinking with, like, rock, with good rock bands in New York, I felt like they tended to get taken up by the majors it's all the majors were all there so they'd they'd sign there was definitely a lot of that like you had access as a new york band the more likely but it also meant that you got plucked early like a lot of bands like probably didn't make it out of new york because you know they hadn't really been a band long they like had a demo tape and did six shows and you know like some guy would have handed them a million dollars right and they just couldn't really That's take true. what it would you know, they, they weren't a band yet. I saw bands like that all the time. They were just like a band Jackass that became Drag Mules. Um, really cool band, but somehow 
somebody in the record doesn't know their first show. Like never, they had this sort of illusion, illusion of being a big band. Um, that could happen to you a lot in New York, where I remember when Jennifer Trinan, remember, remember her? Yeah. Um, she was great, actually. But uh, he did a show, I'd never heard of her. A guy at Open from Connecticut or something called me and was like, hey, I guess I actually really need to get a show. I said, okay. Like, you know, there's a couple labels want to see her. I'm like, all right, blah, 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 whatever. Um, she pulls in, she has to, you know, and literally, like, within the last 15 minutes before she was supposed to go on, like, 200 people showed up. All of them there to see her. And it was, like, Donnie Einer from so Like, the guy's, like, record label <laughs> president. And the room was packed. Like, you couldn't move. And she played her set, everyone cheered, whatever, and they all left. And, like, you would have thought she was a rock star, but it was just, like, this word among the business. This is the hot band to see tonight. And right. we would have so many of those shows that were packed before the band could, like, if they played the next night, nobody would go because it wasn't, like, on that calendar. <laughs> it weren't fans. It was, just, it was really weird. That happened a lot. Yeah. I think after Nirvana really got big, there was this sense that, like, there's another Nirvana out there and we have to find it because the, the side the Nirvana was such a crazy lightning strike lottery ticket, you know, powerball rarity that, that the size of that success was so massive that it just spawned all these people, including girls against boys that getting signed to a major label, which probably wasn't a great idea, you know, uh, but they just, so many of those labels thought that they just had to find the next Nirvana. And so anything that even sniffed like that or had that, and it would totally feed itself. Like I, what Studio is kind of alluding to is basically somebody would hear about a band and then they would talk to their friend at another label and then it would just go around and all of a sudden this was in a hot, amazing band and they, no one even knew what it really was, but they had to yeah. go. It would be a demo tape with three songs, and they'd have like you know, like twenty people calling up when are they going on? What? It was just that. Yeah, it definitely happened to an extent. And they couldn't um, afford to not send somebody to go and have and be there early. Do you know what I mean? Like an early supporter, yes. quote unquote, of this band. So they yep. just would like. Fly. It was. Well, very... it was also the way re the, the record for rec mark record sales. The market was big enough. Yeah. And all the majors had their their multi multi million sellers, whatever they were, Mariah Carey or mm -hmm. whoever. Yeah. And um you would throw darts at the wall with a band that you gave maybe hundred and fifty grand, two two records guaranteed, hundred and fifty grand each plus toy support or whatever. And they didn't cost anything. So any band that like sniffed cool would get would get a would get a shot at that if they had a, if they had a lawyer who had success as if the lawyer was right the one you know and and Richard Grable <laughs> yeah, yeah Grable absolutely God bless him um, yeah uh, yeah I love Richard uh, yeah he's a great man everybody is aware of that in New York like you like I, I booked a club that held two hundred people in it but I could tell you the terms of like whatever record deal was happening. Cause like there was this, you know, you, it was all happening there. If you were in a smaller city, you didn't really interact with the international music business on a regular basis. Right. So 
it creates it's i'm sure it's like this in la and london too it's not new york wasn't unique to that no, but it sort london. of creates it yeah it creates a scene where bands are trying to get into the record business they're not necessarily trying to be big bands or whatever you know it's yeah. It's kind of part of this thing, sort of the sale of your shit, and it pollutes you. And it's so expensive to live here, and you can't have a rehearsal space is expensive, and you probably need two jobs to do it. Like I never knew how bands could do it here. It seemed much more natural in a place like Seattle, where five guys live in one house. You know, one of them has a job at Starbucks, and they have a rehearsal space. Boom, they're done. You know, like you're ready. It was such a different world here. And that's impacted a lot of times in the kind of music that was created. It was like a lot of gritty and angry and rough, like the sound of the city kind of rock. Because to survive was, you really felt you were, you know, you had a fight to get through shit here. It was a pretty, you know, it's always been a hard city. Yeah. You definitely well, suffer to be there here. That's an interesting <laughs> uh, yeah. observation about the, about the sound. Cause that actually came up. I mentioned earlier about our desert rock episode when we were talking to the director who uh, did a film called desert age on the desert rock scene, he talked about when, when talking to the musicians, how the, the fact that they played in the desert, they literally played out in the desert and they would just set up a generator and they would, you know, play in this giant expanse. They couldn't play fast and they couldn't play short songs because the bass would get eaten up and, and they'd had to turn crank the bass up and they would play for 20 minutes a song and they would play for four hours into the we you know hours of the morning and he said in comparison to like a city where there's a different rhythm to the city compared to like a a desert scene and that makes sense in terms of what you're saying about the you know there's an urgency to the sound of a lot of the bands out of new york city and out of in you know chicago as well in the nineties, I think there's in terms of the industrial sound and in the punk and post-punk that we've heard over and over again, in a lot of bands that there's definitely like the, the city forms, the sound as much as the, the people that are in it. So that's interesting, uh, parallel to that recent episode that we did. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's true. The, how you make, how you make your art definitely has an impact on what it becomes. So it's, and you know it's it's definitely that way with bands in New York, I think. So, some names have come up here and there, but when we've talked to previous roundtable guests about various scenes, we like to ask if there are any people that maybe weren't in bands or maybe weren't you know uh, known people, but that were really important to the scene in some way, shape, or form as a you know someone who would spot talent and. Or someone who you know made a lot of impact on um, bands that were coming up, you know, younger bands and and bands that weren't signed, but just you know these kind of like I guess you'd say a scene stir or a personality in the yeah, area like the, that kind of like like Billy Ruane, like Billy Ruane in Boston, who was that guy? But I don't know who the guy was here. I don't know if there was. I mean, there wasn't. There wasn't any for sort of us. Mental, no. Well, I mean, you know, there was there was writers, you know, we, we talked about the importance of the village voice, you know, how yeah. it was like it, it really was central to the music scene because it was how the clubs advertised, how you knew what shows were playing. But it also reviewed records, 
And so, um, you know, Michael Azarad wrote a lot. I'm trying to think of who else was, you know, like he wrote a lot about the underground scene. He wrote a lot about a lot of stuff, but he, I just remember yeah, no, him being a lot. I, yeah, I would say journalist is a good place to go with that. Yeah. But I don't know, you know, because we were always like looking, you know, when we put out a record or something, we were like, oh, let's see what, what are they going to write about it? You know, and this was before, um, you, you know, they would actually listen to the records and write about them, you know, you know, not, not the pitchforks on a like comedy. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like Jack, um, Jack Rabbit. Yeah. I mean, his thing was definitely a little more like Britpop leaning to an extent, but uh big takeover did lots of stuff from championing young little bands. But again, he's not even local. He's just this international guy as far as, you know, what he would cover and his reach. Right. Um, but yeah, there might be less like really localized because if there was that guy, he, he just got a job at a major management company or something, you know, like, well, that was the thing. Of, there was, there was people who I remember introduced me to a lot of bands like Julie Panabianco. She ended up working at yeah. Capitol. And then yep. there was Rachel Felder who was writing stuff, but then she ended up working for Sony. You know yep. what I mean? Yeah. So they would they would get these jobs because they were scene stars and they knew about bands and they yeah. met. Julie, Julie was a publicist at A and M and then started doing A and R at A and M. Yeah, that's how she got there. But she started as a publicist, which is you right. right kind of the more creative part where bands blew up more. I mean, college radio was a big part of that in the country, but. Um, in New York, it was pretty, you know, radio wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, but the writers definitely were. We had a lot of, you know, that's who would, because that, that was really the place where our bands could get covered or get, you know, dealt with. It's either in a little club or in a zine or in press. That was like the only support there really was. <laughs> the other thing about New York is the people who probably influenced it most really were... Uh, club owners and actually people like Mike, people who booked them. Yeah, those that was who shaped I was gonna say, yeah. Bands you were gonna see and and the people who had the balls to open a club in New York. (laughs) (laughs) They're insane. Yeah, I I fell I fell into it. I started booking there because I and I didn't really want to. I was unemployed. But (laughs) yeah, no, we definitely had a certain amount of power to help I mean, I know there were definitely bands that I put on support slots that didn't deserve it because of their marketing, you know, their ability to draw. Um, and that was cool. One of the, it was definitely one of the cool things you could do was, you know, that was a way to help somebody for sure. But you didn't have that much, you know, you didn't have anywhere near as much ability to do that as people thought. Because the pressure to have every slot draw people because of how expensive it is and people don't stay at shows, they're only there for a few minutes and you got to get them a drink and two drinks, you know, it right. was a much higher pressure thing than that. But yeah, we were, you know, we were definitely one of the places. Hmm. And I, and I read in, in doing some research on Brownies about, you know, some of the bands that you booked and you, and you mentioned them like the Strokes and then uh, I think the yeah yeah yeahs were mentioned. It seemed like it set up a I don't want to say a resurgence, but there was definitely a continuation of 
New York being an epicenter of music. I mean, I remember the Strokes being a massive deal in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. You know, having like a special on MTV where they played like in the round to a bunch of kids in a studio. <laughs> like it was a it was like all of a sudden rock music and the guitar had beaten back the electronica of uh, the Chemical Brothers and and the Prodigy and and all of a sudden now the guitars were back and everybody was going to you know, be rocking out to the, all these New York bands, Interpol and the Walkman and all these bands that were, you know, appearing. And um, is it, is that something that you think is just, it's, it's New York and it's always going to have a vibrant music scene. It's going to shift. It's going to const- constantly be, um, you know, evolving whether what the sound is, but is that as relevant now? And, and in the past, you know, I guess now two decades, almost two decades. I, um... No, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I think, um, like I said, there was always something happening here. Um, you know, just because there's so many people, obviously there's going to be something going on. But as far as it gelling like it did in the late 90s, and it was actually a combination of rock and roll and electric, because there was really that whole electro clash was happening at the same time. And the yeah, yeah, it's kind of bled into that world a little bit. Interpol kind of bled into some of that a little bit, or the DFA stuff kind of was in that area. Um, but it yeah. all seemed yeah. like part of one thing uh, because it was all a bunch of new, young, underground rock bands in New York, and there were just so many of them that were good. I think that was definitely a... Um, I don't know. I don't know what caused that to happen you know uh and i as far as the future goes i don't know that i don't know that new york can be that vital anymore because it's just so unbelievably expensive to live here that like who want why would you want to why would you want to now i don't really know what because it just you can it's got the same shit that philly has you know it's not like it used to be where it's you where you have really unique retail and unique neighborhoods and you know a lot of new york's new york's uniqueness has been kind of bled yeah that's true but uh, yeah i don't know that it will be i think it's um it could come around in some way but it seems to me more like uh it's people will maybe come here to get there but the music business is all in la now too as far as the big labels like some of them don't even have new york offices anymore so it's less of a music business town than it was 15, 20 years ago as well. So maybe it will have a chance to do its own thing, but it will probably happen in the black scene, in the like, you know, hip hop or, or, or dance scene. I would think before it happened in rock at this point in New York. I don't know, man. You just never know. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a revolution. On Staten Island. Could be, could be. There's a new strokes yeah. record they're working on. You never know. Might be good. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, this has been a lot of fun. We have covered so much territory. <laughs> I so hope many you got clubs. some good stuff. Oh, my gosh. I yeah, mean, I we, you guys yeah. have packed us with, full of so much information. The, the liner, we we didn't even get to the spin doctors, which is sad. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it really? Speaking of wetlands. Is it? Wetlands. <laughs> I mean. No, they were Nightingales is to blame for them, man. They Nightingales. Nightingale. Wasn't wait. Quick question, because I think Studio might know the answer to this. That at some point early on in the Roots career, they were doing a a residency, and I think it was at Wetlands. Was that right? Do you yeah. remember this at all? That I would didn't. make sense. 
You remember that me? Was totally they, yeah, they definitely I don't did. Remember. Actually, I used to drive a, a taxi in New York, and uh, I would pick people up from that show all the time. It was like they they were there for a long time at Wellands. Where where when was that? What period was that? <sighs> I guess that was like it was late later nineties. It's like okay. 97, 98, something like that. Hmm. that right? It sounds about right. It was probably before that first record, right? It was before the record came out? Like, or was it? I think so. I never went. I never went. I just knew, I always knew it was going on. Right. And I, it was like a, go, a place to go get fares. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, guys, thanks so much for having us on, having me on. Yeah, okay. no, always a, a pleasure. Mike and Mike, thank you for both joining us uh, along with Eli. This was great. And I'm looking forward to uh, our audience getting to, to hear it because all these episodes we've done on various cities have been unique and, and really allow people to get a, like a peek at you know stuff that they didn't know about and all these fascinating uh, you know ground level uh, bits of information that we learned about the about the the Williamsburg of the 1990s and and all of the craziness that went on and uh I only sp- I've only spent about 72 total hours in New York and I feel like uh, and that was in the 90s and I kind of feel like I got out you know unscathed and I'm I'm happy with that <laughs> so <laughs> oh, yeah. so many so many stories so many crazy street stories we could tell you but that's another podcast yeah, that's the, that should be an animated yeah. oh, podcast or you know video cast or something like that. I can just imagine uh, creating little a- animated oh, videos for uh, the insanity that went on and putting that on Adult there's, Swim. Yeah. There is the flip I side. Like that. I always feel most terrified going to places like Ohio and Texas. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Very comfortable in New York. Oh, I go to places there's like definitely that. parts of there's parts of Ohio that are I don't want to go through. <laughs> I live in Ohio, and there's parts of Ohio I don't want to go through. So yeah, and I, I'm a road I'm a road trip guy. I love road trips, but there's nothing to see there. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah. Well, well uh, all right. Well, we're not gonna get into all that. Right now, but, uh... Somebody on this show. Tons of great music from that state. Ohio does not get the love it deserves where it's part of rock history, that's for sure. Uh, well, you guys, be... dude, that's the next roundtable, right? It Dayton? is, in fact. We're doing, we're doing right. the, the golden triangle known as Dayton, Cincinnati, and Columbus. All what right. do you got? Which produced Guided by Voices, the Afghan yeah. Wigs, Great yep. Plains, Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments. A lot of... The, people don't know how many bands... It's crazy how many bands got signed out of Columbus, Ohio in the 1990s. Uh, it was like a feeding yeah, frenzy dude. here. It actually was referred to in an article as the next Seattle at one point. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Brainiac, too. They were getting signed. Brainiac out of Dayton. Yep. yep. Lots of bands. The Breeders, yeah. uh, you know, uh, technically from from Dayton. So Dayton is actually that's, the yeah, funk that's, capital that's, of the world. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. The <laughs> funk museum is in Dayton, state, Ohio. Yeah. That's true. That's not even yeah, and without even like thinking about Cleveland, which has got its own thing that's, too. It's like the, it's yeah. the state in general. It's kind of like it just doesn't. You don't think of it as, or at least I don't, except when I think about the quantity of bands from there and the stuff from there. Oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's the overlooked. Heart of America. 
and we are going to well that's that's our logo it's a malformed heart yeah and uh <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna shed a light on that in the in the uh, next episode which will which will be this fall sometime uh but again thanks every yeah, thanks when does this, how long oh how long before this goes up and like just curious okay so this will be how long does it take next tuesday takes me a oh, week wow okay not not doesn't really take me a week to edit it but uh no that quick i, I won't do it until like sunday night <laughs> I'll start, <laughs> start uh i'll do it about an hour before we post so. yeah that's, that's pretty much yeah he'll put a solid 30 minutes of effort into this yeah Excellent. i pretty much just you know dump it in the garage band throw a song at the beginning and the end and then Come here. that's about it well send me send links to us because i would like to post it and promote it and tell people to listen to it absolutely i'll send links out to all to everybody and um yeah we would appreciate that if you would uh promote it on your socials Definitely. as they say i, I mean, will promote yeah. it on my socials <laughs> <laughs> Mike, i'll definitely watch it on your facebook page is there a two drink minimum <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well you might need a drink after you, <laughs> you probably need a drink before really just to enjoy it um thanks again guys all right i'm gonna sign thank you thanks guys we appreciate it thanks Very look nice. forward to hearing thanks you a lot. thanks for listening to support the podcast visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.